The Supreme Court reveals its abortion pill ruling. We are prepared for whatever uh, announcement comes out. The Supreme Court goes right up to its deadline and weighs in on the widely used abortion pill, Mifepristone. Plus... They say they're going to default unless I agree to all these wacko notions they have. A no-strings-attached debt limit increase will not pass. The debt ceiling dance takes a new turn, heightening tension in Washington as the government's spending deadline looms. And sources confirm President Biden has made an expected but historic decision, preparing to announce his re-election bid. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. I'm Lisa Desjardins. And what a week it is. After weeks of confusion, the Supreme Court has finally weighed in on the most common form of abortion in the country, the use of the medication Mifepristone. The court ruling preserves access to the drug and declines restrictions on its use as the lawsuit over its FDA approval continues. Joining me to discuss this and more are John Yang, who covers the Supreme Court for the PBS NewsHour and is also the anchor of PBS News Weekend. And joining me here at the table, Nandita Bose, White House correspondent at Reuters, Heather Cagle, managing editor for Punchbowl News, Michael Shearer, national political reporter at The Washington Post, and Scott Wong, senior congressional reporter for NBC News. John Yang, let's start with you with God-breaking news. Help us understand, what exactly did the court say tonight? Well, as you said, uh, Lisa, they said that Mr. Mifepristone will remain available without any new restrictions while uh, the appeal of the Tex Texas judge's decision that invalidated Mifepristone's uh, approval by the FDA back in 2000 works its way through the system. Now, because this was an emergency appeal uh, in what's known, become known as the shadow docket, we don't know exactly the breakdown among the justices. We do know that there were only two noted dissents, Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito. The majority did not explain their decision, uh, and only Alito explained his, his opposition to this. He said that he did not think that allowing uh, Mifepristone to remain available with the restrictions that the Fifth Circuit put on it would have a uh, it cause irreparable harm to the public. So then, John, is it correct? This means that the use of Mifepristone essentially stays exactly as it was a week ago, a year ago, no change for the time being. Well, a year ago, you didn't have it by mail, which is now permanent. Uh, but there, there, the restrictions are, are, there are no new restrictions. The Fifth Circuit's ruling would have put new, gone back to 2016, would have uh, limited it to uh, pregnancies in the seventh week rather than the 10th week. Um, it would have required three doctor's visits instead of one. It would have said you couldn't get it from nurses, uh, uh, midwives, or physician's assistants. You had to go to a physician to get it. Uh, and it said you could not get it through the mail. And instead, the Supreme Court is saying, no, we're going back to the policy before uh, we saw this court ruling out of Texas. John Yang, thank you so much for joining us and for your reporting. And we'll see you tomorrow night on PBS News Weekend on Saturday, Sunday. Now to the table, Nandita, I want to start with you. You have covered abortion policy significantly. How significant is this tonight? This is um, a huge win for the administration and the White House. Um, I was just talking to a senior White House official who said that they are celebrating um, 
uh, and, and the president was made aware of this decision by his senior advisors, and he greenlit uh, the statement that went out. And they're sort of um, pausing, taking it all in, and still preparing for what comes next, because this is uh, a case that uh, was, um, the decision was about uh, an appeal for a stay, and uh, there could be future legal cases that are bought uh, that decide the fate of the pill. Um, so the White House is celebrating, uh, but it is a temporary relief. What I will also add is that the strategy going forward uh, is going to focus on preserving this access, making sure the pill is available around the country, retailers around the country can sell the pill, uh, law enforcement officials cannot easily access records of women who are traveling out of state to uh, get an abortion. So the administration is going to focus on some of those things. And there are also a flurry of meetings, from what I understand, focusing on kind of the political calculus of this, which is uh, making sure that this remains top of mind for voters, for young voters, for women going forward for 24. And so they're sort of not losing sight of that uh, just because of this decision. Victory for the White House. They are celebrating, if not a final answer to this question. But Heather, for Republicans, is it possible that some Republicans have some political relief about this decision? Where do you think Republicans are? Yeah, I think so, Lisa. I mean, what we've seen since Roe v. Wade was overturned was there's a real disconnect between Republicans at the federal level and at the state level. In Like, look at Ron DeSantis in Florida. His legislature moved to enact a six-week abortion ban. But Scott and I cover Republicans up here on Capitol Hill, and they're really kind of all over the map. It was much easier to be for overturning Roe v. Wade. Now you're getting into very complicated issues about, well, when should we restrict abortion at what week and how and what exceptions do we have? Whereas if you look at Democrats, they are unified generally around the idea of abortion access and voters are overwhelmingly with them on some abortion access at some level. So the politics have really turned on this in a way that Democrats are able to present this unified message and Republicans are just kind of all over the map. And on that question, Michael. Yeah, there, there was a remarkable moment on Thursday where Ronna McDaniel, the chair of the Republican Party, went to the Reagan Library. She gave a long speech, and in, it was sort of not noticed by many, but in the middle of that speech, she said, Republicans have to be really worried about being appearing as extreme on abortion. Like, the Republicans are a pro-life party, but they got beat bad in, in the midterm elections on this. And she actually says in that speech, it's a winning message to say you're for 15 weeks. And we're talking about Pristone. We're talking about seven weeks, 10 weeks. In, in the case of Ron DeSantis in Florida, we're talking about six weeks. Um, you know, in 22, in the midterms, a lot of candidates got tripped up by saying they didn't believe in exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. I mean, right now, this debate is entirely on the Democratic field. And, and no one is talking about what Republicans want to be talking about, which is the sort of rare cases of very late-term abortions that some Democrats support. Um, and and I, you said the, the White House is very excited. I, I hear the same thing. Democrats, the White House, the, the nascent, non-existent Biden campaign, they're all really bullish right now that in 2024, abortion will appear at the polls in the same way it did during the midterms. We also noticed, of course, that former President Trump got criticism from the right. The, the Susan B. Anthony group, anti-abortion group, criticized him as being not for a federal ban, but instead stressing states. Scott Long, I see you nodding. What is this? What do you hear from Democrats, Republicans on the Hill? Well, in the Trump case, uh, you know, he was getting a lot of pressure to weigh in on Ron DeSantis's six-week abortion ban in Florida. Now, Ron DeSantis himself, as Heather alluded to, 
you know, signed that bill in a very quiet private ceremony. Uh, 11 p.m. at night. Did not advertise like that, right? it, sent a yeah. press release at 11 p.m. at night. <laughs> not a whole lot of fanfare, not like the usual Ron DeSantis press conference. Uh, Trump had been silent for more than a week on that uh, ban in his home state. Uh, under pressure, under questioning from reporters, President Trump, uh, his campaign, put out a statement saying, look, it was my judges that overturned Roe v. Wade. I appointed three of them. They got the job done. Uh, they relegated decisions back to the states, and I'm fine with that. He came under withering criticism from the Susan B. Anthony groups, the other anti-abortion groups, saying that is not that does not go far enough. Uh, we're not going to support a candidate, uh, you know, unless they they want a, a federal ban on abortion nationwide. All right. So as you said, Nandita, the subtext here is 2024. I did some math. This case that we're talking, that John Yang was talking about, that we heard had the ruling on tonight, temporary. But the case, the merits, could get to the Supreme Court this fall. It's being fast tracked. Am I doing this right? That means we could have a decision mm, spring of 2024. Right. Can you help us understand what that could do in a presidential race next year? Absolutely. I mean, we saw how uh, Roe played out during the midterms and how beneficial it was, especially when it uh, came down to boosting turnout. Mm -hmm. And Democrats in the White House are consistently betting on that. And in fact, um, while they are celebrating now, politically speaking, um, this decision, if had it gone the other way, could have been a little bit more beneficial, uh, But which is why they're sort of uh, regrouping and talking about how they can keep this issue alive for 24. And they're, you know, they're talking to a lot of abortion rights groups to, to keep talking about this issue in front of female voters, in front of young voters. Um, so uh, once the decision comes down in 24, it could potentially be very beneficial for the White House. It's, it's, a, it's one of these uh, issues that Democrats are excited about because they don't really have a primary on their side. So Biden can kind of shift towards the center and Republicans are going to be fighting amongst themselves. You know, Trump at his own rallies has warned Republicans not to go for too far to the right on abortion. And he's going, to be run, he's going to be on a debate stage at some point with Mike Pence and Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis, and they're going to be fighting over abortion. And, that, and that's exactly what Democrats want to be seeing in the fall. Of course, all of this comes also as the two top leaders in Washington are in a standoff over raising the U.S. debt ceiling. Each of those leaders has potential problems within their own caucus. On Capitol Hill, Speaker McCarthy rolled out his long-awaited plan on Wednesday. He would raise the debt ceiling into next year in exchange for major spending cuts and the end of some very big Democratic priorities. But does he have enough Republican votes for it? Here's Speaker McCarthy Thursday. I want you to write stories like I'm teetering, whether I could win or not, and the, the whole world hangs in the balance. And then I want you to write a story after it passes. Would the president sit down and negotiate? President Biden immediately rejected the speaker's opening bid and took him to task. Folks, that's the MAGA economic agenda. Spending cuts for working and middle class folks, Americans, and tax cuts for those at the top. But Biden has an issue on his side of the aisle, a familiar one. On Thursday, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia blasted Biden in a statement for what he called a deficiency Democrats. in leadership and urged the president to negotiate with McCarthy. Some House Democrats echoed that idea that it's time for the president to sit down with the speaker. 
All of that comes amid the backdrop of what we've been talking about, that next week President Biden will announce his 2024 re-election bid. I suppose I'm supposed to say he's considering announcing his election <laughs> bid. I don't know. He's going to announce it next week. Um, let's start with the debt ceiling. Heather and Scott, I want to ask both of you what's going to happen here. Heather, next week, does McCarthy have the votes? He doesn't have the votes right now. Um, <laughs> he can lose four votes on the floor and pass it. Right now, uh, they're short of that whip count. They started whipping it yesterday. He's got some problems on his right flank uh, that Andy Biggs of the world, you know, want more things. McCarthy's saying, I'm not going to reopen this bill. It is what it is. And then in the Midwest, uh, Iowa and Minnesota, a lot of these guys are really nervous about the biofuels tax credits that are being repealed and how that looks. Um, and so now what they're kind of trying to do behind the scenes is see if they can give them something like an amendment or some kind of vote later on that would restore some of this to kind of help them go back and save face in their states. They do hope to vote on Wednesday or Thursday, but right now they're still short. Scott, I'm going to do a White House reporter trick and ask you two questions at once. <laughs> what does McCarthy want and how big of a fall will it be if he can't get the votes next week? What McCarthy's trying to do is drive President Biden to the negotiating table. President Biden has been able to just hang back uh, and not participate, not invite McCarthy over for these talks because Republicans have been fighting amongst themselves about, about what types of spending cuts they want to attach to this debt ceiling deal. And so the Democrats, the White House, President Biden feel like they, they are in a superior negotiating position. Uh, and, you know, we will see in this coming week whether McCarthy can get to 218, the magic number that <clears throat> had eluded him for 15 rounds in the speaker race he did get earlier there. this year. He did get there. He's saying he's going to get there with this Republican debt deal, but that only starts the conversation. The, the, you know, the, this, we're sort of in the chest-thumping phase of this negotiation, and both sides are trying to show how much power they bring to the table. And as Nancy Pelosi used to say, like our power is in our unity. And that's true in this case on both sides. And so they're sizing each other up. And at some point, there's going to have to be a conversation. At some point, someone's going to have to cave. Both McCarthy and, and Biden have said actually defaulting on this is not an option. So there's an actual cliff here that both sides say they don't want to go over. Um, but, but where the you know, middle ground is found will depend on how, how strong they look when they come to the table. Nandita, there's a lot of doublespeak here. We talked about this earlier. I think folks might be confused by the White House stance. Take us through it where they won't negotiate, mm -hmm. but they will talk about something later. Right. How, what, how, what, 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 and, they, what are they trying to do? You're absolutely right. So we've seen that sort of trajectory uh, when the president especially started with show me a proposal and I am happy to negotiate. And that has slowly sort of evolved into, well, I want a clean debt ceiling hike, take the risk of default off the table, and I'm happy to sit down and have a serious conversation. So there has been an evolution uh, in mm -hmm. that position that the White House has taken on the White this House issue. just wrote down the word evolution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. And, um, uh, I mean, look, the White House's position on this has been that this is a draconian proposal, uh, that, that we want budget talks to be kept separate uh, from debt ceiling talks. Uh, the president was at the Rose Garden just a few hours ago mm -hmm. uh, describing how uh, the spending cuts impact his climate agenda. Uh, the White House is, you know, on a messaging blitz. They are sending out a lot of information talking about how this impacts manufacturing jobs, how this, like, impacts the student uh, debt relief program. So. Their strategy right now is really premised around the idea uh, that 
the spending proposal will prove to be unpopular as soon as the consequences of this are spelt out clearly. Mm -hmm. And that is what they're trying to do. And also privately, the, the, the president is calling his, um, his supporters in Congress, Democrats in Congress, trying to keep the caucus together. So that is another sort of priority. Power in our unity. I know some viewers might say, wait a minute, we have until June, maybe September for that X date, the date by which the U.S. government can no longer actually pay its bills. But Heather, is that, how much time is that really in congressional speak to get things done? I'm getting a little nervous, I'm going to be honest. I mean, you guys know, we've all seen Congress, they don't really do anything until they have a deadline, um, and they usually take it right up until then. The problem is, as you said, Lisa, we don't actually know when the X date is. Um, we expect the CBO to give us, we'll know something more from Treasury next week. The CBO will give an update in mid-May, but the House is out after next week for a week, then we're into May, we're getting very close to June. I mean, it's very nerve-wracking, I think, on the Hill, and as you said, the White House is saying, I'm not going to negotiate with McCarthy until he passes something and agrees to put a clean debt limit on the floor. He is not going to do that. So there is going to have to be some acknowledgement from both sides that we are going to meet and we're going to give up some of these talking points, come to the middle and find something that frankly can allow both of them to save face in a way. I don't think either one is going to get exactly what they want and we're just not there yet. Scott, you've covered a lot of this brinkmanship. What do you think an end game could be here? Let's figure it out, but well, what do you think? Well, you, you, the question I did not answer earlier was what happens to McCarthy here? What are the stakes? And this is really McCarthy's first big test mm -hmm. as Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know part of the deal that he negotiated with the conservatives uh, when he was securing that Speaker's gavel was to reinstate this motion to vacate where any single member can bring a vote to the floor to remove McCarthy as Speaker of the House at any given moment. If they don't like the details of this deal with President Biden, that could happen. And so McCarthy personally has a lot riding on this debt deal, as does the nation. Anyone else on the end game here? Do we see what? it yet, Michael? I think it's going to be like both sides have to find a way to maintain their red lines, but there is still a gray space here where they can figure out how to do that. I think another thing to keep an eye on is the the plan McCarthy's talked about is a one year extension of the debt ceiling, which basically means in the middle of an election year we'll be like naming a Republican nominee and we'll be doing this again. So that's a wild prospect uh, as well. Why was why is that beneficial to McCarthy? Why would he want another debt ceiling fight in the spring of 2024? I mean, Heather can correct me, but I think he's trying to get votes. I mean, they, like he's yeah. basically saying to the, his right flank, you're going to have a second run at this. Mm -hmm. We'll get another piece of the pie next year at some point. But it's going to be a very difficult position. Right now, Democrats feel very certain that the polling on this is to their benefit. And in an election year next year, they're going to feel even more certain. And whoever the Republican nominee is almost certainly going to be saying, wait, I got to figure out how to get to a general election position here. I don't really want to be defending a, you know, a, a, a collapse of the stock market right now. I always think in the end game, there usually ha there has to be a, a handshake deal at this point. There's not enough time for a full appropriations bill to make it out in terms of the debt ceiling. But these guys aren't meeting yet, so a handshake certainly is a far way away. Want to also talk about former, about President Biden and his and his election announcement that we expect next week, um, Michael. I want to ask you why is the what? Tell me the thinking here, and why is there no marching band here? Why is it going to be a video? Uh, I, I think if you look back at how Obama announced in 2012, it's become more typical now to not start with giant rallies if you're a known commodity. What they need to do is set up a fundraising 
system. They need to start reactivating their grassroots volunteers. They need to start rebuilding their lists. They need to actually start building their own staff. They have to hire senior staff. They have to get a building, probably uh, in Wilmington, to, to actually have this going. And so they need something to get there. And then they can later in the summer or even the fall do a bigger splash announcement. It, you know, when Obama announced in early uh, uh, 2011, you know, we we, that was a video. It was grassroots supporters talking about how they're really excited to get back in the game. And then he kind of kept being president for six months or eight months before he was out on the campaign trail. So I would expect something similar to that, that this is just establishing a foothold. They can start doing the work they need to actually build what they need. Uh, and then, and then uh, you know, Biden can act more like a candidate later in the, later in the cycle. And, and I just wanted to sort of jump in there. Uh, it also helps the president stay above the fray. Right, sure. as, as everyone else fights out for, I mean, Republicans fight out for the GOP nomination. And that's sort of been the strategy of this White House and his uh, top advisors. Um, that, was, that is why they've been delaying this decision for as long as they have. Uh, and, and they've consistently communicated that there are no rush to make an announcement. And one other thing that I will point out is how different this is, this is going to be, this campaign specifically, because the president ran the last one from his basement. Right. This one. He he really has to show up. He has to avoid those verbal gaffes. He has to be present. He has to look sharp. Um, and that's going to be a challenge for an 80-year-old president. Um, and so White House aides are sort of focused on, um, on that strategy of how to sort of keep him going, because he will still have a day job to do. How do Democrats on the Hill view this? Because this is still a president who he hasn't had a positive approval rating in a year. There's some enthusiasm gap with voters. But how comfortable are members of the Hill who are worried about their own jobs as well? Yeah, Biden is underwater with voters uh, nationwide. But at the same time, Heather and I were up at uh, the Democratic retreat in Baltimore a few weeks ago. And Democrats, uh, Biden came to talk to them. But Democrats were very excited about the prospects of four more years. Uh, you know, Pramila Jayapal, the progressive caucus leader who endorsed Bernie Sanders the last time around over Joe Biden, she was saying, hey, Joe Biden is the most progressive president we've seen in, in our lifetimes, uh, pointing to a lot of those legislative victories, the Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure, gun reform, chips in science, the list goes on and on. It was a very productive uh, two years under President Biden, and uh, you know, Democrats felt at that time they have a lot, had a lot to run on. And I will say one interesting thing I want to point out. I was talking to senior Republicans in the House and the Senate this week privately, and they both expressed that they think that Biden can beat Trump, and they're very concerned about that. And they won't say that publicly, of course, but they he beat him once, and they are worried about that. In our last minute or so, Heather, Republicans, we know what they've been trying to do. They have been trying to really knock down Biden through their investigations. Um, has, has, have they landed punches yet? How do we see that going? You know, that's a good question. I think you talk to a lot of Republicans on the House side. They have launched a barrage of investigations. They've, they've tweeted something this week. They sent, they've sent hundreds of letters so far just in the first, you know, three or four months of having the majority. But have they really landed a punch so far? I don't think so. I think part of it is they're still very early. Part of it is the administration is not really cooperating with them. And part of it is it's so disparate right now. There's not really a common narrative yet of here's corruption here or here's this, right? So as, as it goes on, we could see something. But right now, it's just a lot of spaghetti being thrown at the wall. And it's interesting because over in the Senate, they're sort of just sitting and not doing too much at all. Michael? Right. Time. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Senate's business seems to be these days uh, 
confirming judges and nominees. They're missing uh, a key member of the Judiciary Committee. Republicans right now are blocking any way of temporarily replacing or probably permanently replacing Dianne Feinstein of California, who's been out uh, with an illness. And so, yeah, they don't have much to do uh, at the moment. And I suspect that topic is of interest to our viewers and will come up probably in future Washington weeks. So <laughs> thank you all. That ends this episode of Washington Week. Thank you to our wonderful panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And thanks to all of you for watching at home. Be sure to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday for a look at what scientists are doing to rescue, rescuing disappearing plant life. I'm Lisa Desjardins. Good night from Washington. Corporate funding for Washington Week is provided by for 25 years, Consumer Cellular has been offering no-contract wireless plans designed to help people do more of what they like. Our U.S.-based customer service team can help find a plan that fits you. To learn more, visit ConsumerCellular.tv. Additional funding is provided by Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. Sandra and Carl DeLay Magnuson, Rose Herschel and Andy Shreves, Robert and Susan Rosenbaum, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you.